1: Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE.
0: Did he say it? We don't know. John Morton dying signer of the Declaration. Still four years from American victory in the Revolution, told his critics, those who thought he was foolish to have voted for independence and to have signed the Declaration of Independence. Tell them that they will live to see the hour when they shall acknowledge it to have been the most glorious service that I have ever rendered my country. It's a great quote. But no one heard it at the time or said anything about it until a century later. More than a century. Man of Finnish, Swedish descent from Pennsylvania who lived about 16 miles from the capital, Speaker of the Pennsylvania Assembly for time. Deciding state. But its delegates were exactly split with folks like James Wilson and Benjamin Franklin on one side and George Reed. And others on the other, it came down to John Morton, who went for independence there by putting Pennsylvania in the yay column. Now, Morton was for it originally. He writes to Thomas Powell, a merchant in London, in a 1775 letter, and says this, You have declared the New England people rebels, and the other provinces eaters and abettors. This is putting the halter about our necks, and we may, may as well die by the sword, as be hanged like rebels. This has made the people desperate. He wrote another letter. I hope time will manifest to the world that a steady perseverance in the cause of freedom will triumph over all the deep laid schemes of tyranny. So, yeah, I mean, there's some question there as to whether he said and it's always he certainly felt it. And it's certainly conceivable that if people criticized him, he might make a comment, you know, in the in the last couple of days that somebody recorded that was something like that. We're a little bit past the day of the signing of the Declaration of Independence, which was July 4th? No, not exactly. It was signed on August 2nd, 1776. And it was signed in some cases by different people than those who had participated in all the debates and in the drafting. For instance, Robert Livingston participated, pushed the issue of independence, served on the committee to help write a declaration of independence, but wasn't around for the signing, so did not sign. And therefore didn't become a signer, even though he was very important to what happened July 2nd and 4th, 1776. But then you have the case of Robert Morris and George Reed, two Pennsylvania delegates to the Continental Congress who did sign but were opposed to independence during those votes. It should be noted that their state, or at that time their colony of Pennsylvania, did vote yay. And Robert Morris was against independence, but sat out for the final vote, therefore allowing Pennsylvania to go into the yay column. We think on purpose. Here's what a New York Times article from 1981 said about the signers of the Declaration of Independence, which does stand in stark contrast from the sacredness of most presentations of these men. The 56 signers of the Declaration of Independence form a fascinating cross-section of late 18th century America. Some were great men, some were not. A few were best-known leaders in their states. Others were in Philadelphia because the really powerful local leaders stayed home to form their state governments. That was the real deal. The action was in the states at this time. You have the case of Peyton Randolph, who is very respected. And when there's trouble between the Virginia Assembly, then a colonial assembly, and Lord Dunmore, the British governor, and it's going to be an armed struggle eventually, he returns to Virginia to form a state who's picked to replace him, March 1775, Thomas Jefferson. Even Jefferson considered himself a pale comparison at the time to Peyton Randolph. Peyton Randolph would end up dying in 1776 and then would not get well known as one of the founders. So Thomas Jefferson becomes one of the most successful alternates ever. (laughs) But it's something that's so important because we talk about the signers all the time, and we should. And it's an important document. And the people who signed, you know, put their names on the line. They were important people. They had possibility of great loss. But it is also important to realize that many other people sacrificed. I don't believe there's a signer that fought in the Battle of Concord or Lexington. I could be corrected. There are also some 8,000 Americans imprisoned on British prison ships. And this is something that hasn't gotten a lot of attention in the textbook version of the history. So there's people who made great sacrifices who were not of the stature of many of the signers of declaration. Nobody more than me has done, I've done a whole podcast on the signers, which we're going to talk about. But it is important to note that there were many other people who were either in the army or organizing in their own local states where a lot of the action was going on. But it is on August 2nd when most of the people who we see as signers of the Declaration of Independence sign it. Not all. Thomas McCain does not sign until years later. After that signing ceremony, August 2nd, the declaration was most likely in the office of Charles Thompson. He's another figure. Now, when you look at the engraving of the Declaration of Independence, which you most often see if you get a copy in a in a store or something like that, it will be just the signature of John Hancock very large signature and Charles Thompson Charles Thompson seems like a small figure but he's actually very important to the revolutionary movement in Philadelphia. John Adams calls him the Samuel Adams of Philadelphia. He was allied with Benjamin Franklin and during the crisis over the Stamp Act of 1765, he's very vocal in the opposition to that Stamp Act. His duties were not just limited to some doing some clerical work, although he could do that. And he is the one who engraves, that mean redoes the declaration in a nice format, as opposed to the type of handwriting copy you would have in a legislative body with marks and everything in it. But he does more than that. He acted, in many cases, as the Prime Minister of the United States before there had been such a setup. But there's something else. Thompson is responsible now for that declaration, the original one. And December 12th, 1776, after this has been signed and everyone's excited in in August, the British fleet arrives. And threatened by the British, Congress reconvenes from Philadelphia to Baltimore. The first printing of the declaration that goes out, has just the signatures of Charles Thompson, the secretary, and John Hancock, the president of the Continental Congress. President of the United States of America in Congress assembled. You have in 1777, the successful battles of Trenton and Princeton, where George Washington surprises the British and beats not only the Hessians, that's that famous Christmas story, right? But also goes on, moves around the British force that came to beat him after Trenton and defeats a second British force in Princeton. After these two victories, the Congress is in Baltimore and declares that the copies go out now with all the signatures of the 56 men who signed the Declaration of Independence and that it be sent to each of the United States and that they be desired to have the same put on record. The declaration, the original one, now moves back to Philadelphia and is held there from March to September 1777. After the British threaten Philadelphia and eventually they'll capture it, it moves to Lancaster, Pennsylvania for a day or two for most of the rest of the year and into 1778 is kept in York, Pennsylvania. It's then moved back to Philadelphia. The declaration goes where the Continental Congress goes. So in 1783, it's in Princeton, New Jersey, and then it's moved to Annapolis, Maryland for a short time, stays there till 1784, It then goes to Trenton, New Jersey for a short period of time, as the very temporary capital of the United States is there for a very short period of time. When Congress moves to New York, this would be the Confederation Congress, the Declaration goes with it and it's housed in the New York City Hall, the old one. The first Congress under the Constitution of the United States creates a Department of Foreign Affairs and demands that this secretary should have the custody and charge of all records, records, books, and papers. So now Charles Thompson retires as secretary of the Congress and surrenders the Declaration. And then in March of 1790, Thomas Jefferson who had drafted the Declaration of Independence, becomes in charge of keeping it as he becomes Secretary of State. In 1800, under President John Adams, the Declaration is moved from Philadelphia to the new federal capital in Washington, D.C. It travels on a boat down the Delaware River, into the ocean, into Chesapeake Bay, and up the Potomac to Washington. It's housed in one of the few buildings that existed in the early capital, and that's the Treasury Department. For temporary time, it's in the old war office building. But you have this interesting thing that occurs, and that's in August 1814. The United States is at war with Great Britain. A British fleet is again appearing in American waters on the Chesapeake Bay. Secretary of State James Monroe rides out to see the landing of the British forces and then alerts State Department officials. In particular, a clerk named Stephen Pleasanton. Please purchase coarse linen. Cause it to be made of bags of convenient size, in which the gentlemen of the office can pack the precious books and records, including the Declaration. Pleasanton writes his story in 1849. He says, I obtained carts and had them conveyed to a grist mill, then unoccupied, belonging to one Mr. Edgar Patterson. Situated a short distance on the Virginia side of the Potomac, beyond the Chain Bridge, so called, two miles above Georgetown. An armaments foundry was near the mill, and Pleasanton, thinking that the British might destroy it, led his carts west to some farmhouse in Virginia, procured wagons in which the books and the papers were deposited. Then he rode to Leesburg, a distance of 35 miles. So while the White House and other government buildings were burning, the Declaration was stored 35 miles away, hiding in one person's house. And it's kind of a local mystery. They're not exactly sure which house the Declaration was stored in during this time, but it's somewhere in Lees, somewhere in Leesburg, Virginia. Pleasanton said an empty house was procured by a Reverend Mr. Littlejohn. The papers were safely placed, the doors were locked, and the keys given to that reverend. Littlejohn was not just a reverend. He served as county sheriff, and as one person described, he could finish a saddle, preside on the bench as a magistrate, preach a funeral sermon, baptize a child, and perform the marriage ceremony all on the same day. And apparently, one night in 1814, he also had the task of protecting this revered American document. There is another account. Um, a Mrs. A.H. Throckmorton differs with Pleasanton. Her story having been recorded later in the 1800s, she says, For one night, they, all the papers, remained in the courthouse here in Leesburg, and then were carried several miles out in the country to the estate of Rokeby, and securely locked within the old vault, and remained out of reach of the enemy for two weeks. It's perhaps the area's oldest brick home, built about 1760 for the first clerk of court. It has a vault with iron-barred windows, and it was common for local officials to store county documents in their homes, lacking buildings to do so. Unfortunately, this Miss Throckmorton is somebody that no one knows and wasn't available is can't be found in the existing county records. So it will remain a little bit of a mystery, but one thing we know is as that flames were seen in the distance in Washington City, the declaration was safe. It's not until the British had withdrawn their fleet from the Chesapeake Bay and by September 1814 that the Declaration is returned to the National capital, And with the exception of a quick trip in the 1970s to Philadelphia for the centennial and for safekeeping in Fort Knox during World War II, the Declaration document has remained there since. I'm really pleased to be able to talk today with a, a longtime listener, Jason Petrie, who, and he his father and his uncle, constructed and his brother constructed uh, card decks of all the signers and he sent one to me he's very pleased to get one of those the declaration has a very important symbolic nature but as you can see in american politics what any group of words mean is going to be somewhat dependent on who you are and what your politics are but that cannot be The totality of the truth, I believe. It has a powerful influence towards freedom and has been used in political debates. You know, the fact that that declaration was saved in that house in Leesburg, Virginia, meant that 40 years later, Abraham Lincoln could write to someone who had invited him to a celebration of Thomas Jefferson's birthday in Boston the following. Your kind note inviting me to attend a festival in Boston on the 13th in honor of the birthday of Thomas Jefferson, was duly received. My engagements are such that I cannot attend. Bearing in mind that about 70 years ago, two great political parties, the Republicans and the Federalists, were first formed in this country, and that Thomas Jefferson was the head of one of them, and Boston the headquarters of the other. He's talking about Thomas Jefferson being the headquarters of the Democrat-Republicans, and Boston being definitely the capital, if you will, of Federalist Party politics. Lincoln's noting how odd it is that these days, in the 1850s, it is both curious and interesting that those supposed to descend politically from the party opposed to Jefferson should now be celebrating his birthday in their own original seat of empire, while those claiming political descent from him have nearly ceased to breathe his name everywhere. All honor to Jefferson, Lincoln says, The man who, in the concrete pressure of a struggle for national independence by a single people, had the coolness, forecast, and capacity to introduce into a merely revolutionary document an abstract truth, applicable to all men in all times, and so embalm it there, that today, and in all coming days, it shall be a rebuke and a stumbling block to the very harbingers of reappearing tyranny and oppression. Lincoln was using history to beat up politics. And it wasn't new he did it in his entire career his famous cooper union speech with many people say is what gave him the presidency was simply that he was expressing how the views of the founders including people like jefferson who were slave owners was tending towards the gradual emancipation perhaps elimination of slavery in america not the way it was going in the 1850s which seemed like a new set of territories and perhaps all of the terra firma south where slavery could actually grow. He said of his political opponents, they are the vanguard, the miners and the sappers of returning despotism and anchored his statements in the Declaration of Independence. The name, the Republican Party, which is odd because that's the same name that was often used to describe Jefferson's people, but Jefferson is always seen as the symbolic head of the Democratic Party in the United States through history. Still today, you have things like Jefferson Jackson dinners and the like. But you have to also remember that the Republican Party, starting in the early 1850s in Wisconsin, also decided on that name because they wanted to claim Jefferson as their own. In politics, if not in, you know, if you couldn't draw a line between the various politicians involved in the party. In their politics, they felt they were closer to Jefferson. Lincoln certainly did. And he invoked the declaration as that bulwark.
1: Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Listen to Nerd Wallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.
0: I'm very pleased to be joined by Jason Petrie. Uh, he is a listener of My History Can Beat Up Your Politics, and he is a signers of the Declaration buff, if you will. Really glad to have you on, Jason. Thanks a lot.
2: Uh, Thanks, Bruce. It is my pleasure and honor to be with you for your fifteenth anniversary. How long have would you say you've been listening to the show? I can probably tell you about exactly when it was. (laughs) I was looking for podcasts about the Declaration of Independence, and I found your "They Signed" uh, series, which I think you started back in. 2012. And there may have been a couple of episodes already on the feed when I started mm-hmm. listening, but I, I got into that pretty early. And, and of course, you mentioned your other podcast, My History Can Beat Up Your Politics, at the end of every episode of that podcast. So I, I subscribed and have been listening ever since.
0: I happen to work for a place that even well before uh, COVID-19, for financial reasons, got rid of their off. So we were all working at home. And uh, so I had kind of uh, no commute. And I was like, well, let me do something extra. So I was doing the uh, Signers podcast in the the meantime there.
2: It's a really great podcast. I've listened to it several times all the way through. I try to do it once a year around the the fourth. And there's always something new that kind of stands out when you you hear it for the the third or fourth time. And if people haven't listened to that, I'd highly recommend it to any of your regular listeners.
0: That was the time when there was still this email chain going around about the sacrifice of the signers. And while the sacrifice of the signers was great, I felt that the email chain that was going around was just incorrect in so many ways. That was no longer doing much Honor to the signers, and my point was always: there's no reason to exaggerate. We can uh, we can just uh, you know actually look at these people as as best as we can tell, because there's a little less information about people from the say the the politicians of the 1760s, which or uh, are a lot of the people that ended up signing, than there are about some of the those signers that were more involved in the revolution and there and with the American government thereafter.s but you know we can we can find some information and we can actually salute them for for who they are and everything like that and it and it grew and I got really interested in it and it it's fascinating. But at a certain point, I think every podcaster has done this. They they try that second podcast and it's really tough. So we wanted to talk about uh, signers a bit. You were nice enough to send me and thank you very much for signing to me, Jason. This uh, the Liberty deck which is something that you worked on, which is a deck of cards, which each card has a signer on it. So would you like to talk just a little bit about that?
2: Sure. That was really my my dad's project along with his uh, brother, my Uncle Donald. And both of them are no longer with us, unfortunately. But they got the idea back in about late 75, maybe around 76, when the Bicentennial Mm -hmm. was kicking off. They were both in education and there was, at the time, a, a traveling exhibit that I don't know who was putting it on, the State Department or the, the uh, uh, Pennsylvania folks. And it included a replica of the inkstand and some candlesticks and a tablecloth and a facsimile of the Declaration of Independence. And they would put it on display in various communities. And while my uncle was uh, looking at it, he had kind of an epiphany where he thought – I uh, said to his brother, How many signers are there? My dad says, Well, there's 56. And he says, And how many cards in a deck? And I think he was having one of those brain situations where he <laughs> expected the answer to be 56. And my dad says, Well, 52. <laughs> so I went, Ah, oh, that doesn't work out then. But he asked him what he was thinking about. And he said, Well, it'd be kind of neat to have a deck of cards with uh, each of the signers on there. And uh, they kicked around the idea and said, We could have their portraits. And When they were born and when they died and their signature at the bottom and a little biography and then they almost immediately decided in the back of the card we'd recreate john hancock signing the declaration of independence and so since they had access to this traveling exhibit they they set it up where they put the ink stand out on a table with the declaration and and took some pictures of it unfortunately that was back in the 70s where it was kind of tough to do uh, quality photography and none of those pictures really turned out they tried to get the the deck put together but again it was in the the 70s so that was kind of a project to do Mm -hmm. didn't have desktop no desktop publishing and it was a lot harder to research things and there weren't readily available portraits of all the signers so they were mocking up a card they always did uh, Benjamin Franklin who ended up being the ace of hearts and they would get the, uh, the picture off a $100 bill and put it on a card and mock that up. And they went through various iterations of that. But when they were looking into getting the manufacturing done and the boxes, it just was not something they were really set up to do. So it, it didn't really go anywhere in the 70s. Then in the 90s, my brother and I were in law school together and we were thinking, geez, you know, it's it's such a shame that nothing ever came of that Liberty Deck idea those guys had. And we realized at the time, you know, we had access to Macintosh computers and you could print things in color. And we went over to the university library and found a, a neat old book that was put out by the State Department in 1904 for some reason that presented for the first time a complete gallery of Portraits of all the signers of the Declaration of Independence. So we just saw that all this stuff is actually available and it it wouldn't be that hard. So we kind of got them back on the the project again and they actually followed through with it that time and had, uh, I I think they had a thousand decks printed out. Oh, wow. Then the issue became selling them. So that was Uh back in the 90s and they had a website and we sold a few decks online, but never really much interest. And of course, the obvious thing is to get them into gift shops at the in philadelphia and dc and when we would try to do that everyone was always really interested in the product but they also wanted to buy them for 99 cents so they could mark them up to a dollar 99 and sell them but the the actual cost that we had into each deck was more like four dollars and 75 cents mm-hmm. so that wasn't really a, a profitable thing and I, I think the only way you could have actually done that is to have them manufactured overseas probably mm-hmm. and greater uh, quantities than we were willing to do. And they were, my uncle and my dad were also very uh, concerned that the Liberty deck had to be printed and conceived and produced in the United States and, they always wanted to have a cute little thing where at the end it said the former British colonies in America. So because they were stuck on that, it it never was something that was really viable. Although through the years we did sell um, a number of decks and I think probably the most that they ever sold was at kind of a a strange uh, tourist attraction that's in rapid city, South Dakota. I'm not even sure it's there anymore (laughs) because they quit buying the, the decks, but, uh, There was a a well-to-do gentleman who was fascinated by American history and the revolution, and he built kind of a, I guess it's generous to say, a replica of Independence Hall. It's a big blocky building that, I guess, it gives you the impression of Independence Hall. And then inside, they had recreated in life-size mannequins the Trumbull painting of the uh, Committee of Five presenting the declaration to john hancock so it was this three-dimensional room and you could walk around it and look at it from different angles and then they had tour guides that would give you some information about some of the people that most people don't know anything about
0: well that's great i'm actually uh, looking it up to see if maybe there's any clue if that's still there in rapid city um oh i see a building um, it might be an older picture yeah i kind of get this sense it's like a uh, it's much bigger See, you have more space in Rapid City than you do in Philadelphia. <laughs> so the actual um, tower, what it's rep, what it's a replica of, is that corner um, part of the building where the tower is. In, and at least to my eye, on this website, it actually looks like it's actually bigger. But yeah, this uh, they've really done um, an attempt, an attempt to uh, to really make it look. And it apparently has forty-seven founding fathers in life-size mannequin form, and a, um, a Liberty Bell replica. I mean, I think these things are important because not everyone can get to Philadelphia. And uh, I'm on the East Coast, and it's pretty important to remember that not everyone is, which people forget. Yes, that's true. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if someone wants to get that experience, um, they they really, it's good to have at least places where someone can visit that, that can do it. Well hey, let's look at let's take a look at the uh at the deck here. I have the uh deck of cards that you sent me and I'm gonna do my very poor shuffling here. So yeah, when we look at it, there is as you say a picture of uh the Hancock and the Inkwell. The inkwell, is there more to say about that?
2: You know, there's there's not a whole lot of information about the inkwell that's mm-hmm. out there. We know who made it mm-hmm. and when it was made and, and that sort of thing. And that it was used in Philadelphia. It wasn't something that was specifically created for the Continental Congress to use. And uh, they just took advantage of it because it was, it was there. The, the guy that made it was uh, Philip Singh. I think he was a, an Irishman, although the, the name doesn't seem Irish to me. I think that's that's correct. And uh, it was used at both the signing of the Declaration and the Constitution, just coincidentally. And then when they moved the the Capitol, they took it with them, and it wasn't until, I think, the, the centennial in 1876 where they put it back in its uh, rightful place at Independence Hall. And, oh, so you know, that
0: indicates that um, if they moved it to the Capitol, I guess, to Harrisburg um, or uh, the uh, Harris Ferry and then became Harrisburg, um, that then they probably indicates that this was really the inkwell of the state of Pennsylvania.
2: Yeah, I think that's correct.
0: Yeah, and um, it 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 just that was the that was the most important thing going on in that building for a lot of people. This was still experimental at the time of yeah. the signing, uh, and uh, well, that's wonderful. And it yeah, it is interesting that there would be this. Um, Particular document, and we, we we don't have kings and queens here, and we we should be careful about the sacredness to which we apply objects like that. The actual signing, where most of them are signing, I believe, is actually the anniversary just passed. We're talking on the third of August, and August second seems to be the date when a bunch of of these signers actually got in the room and and said we want to actually affix our names.
2: Yeah, and I, I think that's one of the more interesting aspects of that is that uh, both Thomas Jefferson and John Adams, uh, to their death, insisted that they signed it, this, the copy that's in the National Archives on the 4th of July. And I think the, the historical record shows that that's just not correct. And the the book that I mentioned earlier that we got that had all the portraits in it, has a, a little section where it talks about that, and it says that the journal of the convention on August 2nd, 1776, says the Declaration of Independence being engrossed and compared at the table was signed by the members. Then it goes on to say, yet it is certain that all did not sign at that time. In fact, Thornton did not attach his signature until November 1776, and Colonel McCain, as Thomas McCain, is authority for the statement that he did not sign it until 1781 which is 5 years later which i've always been kind of fascinated by.
0: Well i think At some of some them point, were um, went right to the army so some of them were fighting yeah. uh, and they, they were not to able to right away, yeah. to to do it. Let's let me just do this real quick. Here's my lousy shuffling. You won't catch me doing this in Atlantic City but uh, i just going to the first one. It is George Walton of Georgia. A small man who was orphaned when a boy, self-taught man who began as a carpenter, became a lawyer, judge, and U.S. Senator. Severely wounded and captured at Savannah, founder of University of Georgia. That is George Walton of Georgia. And, you know, I learn a couple things right from that, or a couple things that are important right from that, is that, first of all, there's this talk that these Folks are all rich people that started the revolution and that were signers. And here's a fellow who's a carpenter who self-taught. And there were many ways you could become a lawyer, just studied with somebody. as a lot of these, some of them who actually were signers did. You just studied with another lawyer and then started hearing cases. Um, and so he doesn't appear to be at least somebody of huge means. Also, the Battle of Savannah, probably one of the underrated Um, Revolutionary War battles I mean it wasn't successful so that's part of the reason why where the city of Savannah was captured by the the British and an army of Americans and French it was one of the first uh, French commitments of ground troops uh, tried to retake Savannah and they tried to retake it from from the swamp side and it was bloody and they were unsuccessful in both French soldiers shed blood and uh american soldiers shed blood in that he was severely wounded um so there you have it that's the first
2: one i pulled out was george walton and and george walton i'll tell you the um the dilemma that my, my dad and my uncle had was mm-hmm. what to do with the four extra people. So they were going to put mm-hmm. two of them on jokers, and they ended up having four on jokers, and they thought it was just disrespectful to call them jokers. So they <laughs> called the four extra ones the patriots, and George Walton is one of those.
0: I'll just do one more quick one, then I'll have a uh, just a question about your favorite signer. Unless we happen upon it. Boy, this is, uh, I tell you, no dealer would tolerate this kind of uh, horrible (laughs) shuffling. uh, Two of spades is Joseph Hughes of North Carolina. And the card says, Quaker-born shipping merchant, first head of U.S. Navy, and credited with getting John Paul Jones his first command. Fiancee died young, broken-hearted Hughes, never married, one of two bachelor signers and not one of them that commonly rolls off the tongue any standard review of the signers of the declaration must start with the man who signed the largest john hancock and that is why i will not begin with him he deserves praise and we'll get to him, but instead I ask you to picture a man desperately clinging to the rudder of a sailing vessel as it speeds up the Atlantic Ocean. His hands are occupied so he can't wave. He relies on his voice to signal to his fellow passengers his distress. As he shouts, he hopes to be heard above the ocean foam. Sea travel was not smooth or safe in the time of the founding of America. On the high seas, an overcrowded British vessel going from the British colony in St. Augustine, Florida, to the city of Philadelphia. Thomas Haywood was jerked from the deck and fell into the water. Pronounced Haywood, though it appears Hayward on the declaration that he signed, he was being released as part of a prisoner exchange and was about to get his freedom. Now, his life was in peril. This was not a punishment devised by the British dunking him in water, although some of the authorities might have wanted to do that. It was an accident, yet indirectly resulted from the captivity he suffered. Men from the boat looked around for him, feared he was deep in the sea. They were soon alerted to the ship's bow. Haywood was using a voice that he hadn't been using during most of his famous contribution to history. He seldom spoke during the congressional session, he was a moderate. He didn't want independence at first, he wanted some form of protest against Great Britain's treatment of Americans, maybe some appeal to other nations, but hopefully reconciliation with the king. He would come to change his mind and side with the patriot cause, with the independent cause. When the British attacked and captured the main city of his state in 1780, Haywood was taken prisoner and the British would plunder his plantation. The British made no distinction between reluctant signers and enthusiastic ones. And... The British had another reason to single him out. Hayward was appointed the judge of the criminal courts of the new state government. He was presiding at the trial of people who had conducted treasonable correspondence with the British Army, which was in the vicinity of Charleston. Judge Hayward condemned the people who had conducted the correspondence and ordered their execution, and ordered it to take place within view of the enemy. This served, along with the signing of the Declaration, to make him a special target for the British. Yet Hayward was treated as a prisoner of war and, thankfully, due to a prisoner exchange, escaped the noose. He was rescued from the rudder, too, and he would live to see the Constitution of the United States passed, and his fellow signer, Thomas Jefferson, become president. He died in 1809. Thomas Lynch, Jr., it appears, was not so lucky with his voyage. He hadn't been on that ship, the ship that Hayward was on. He wasn't captured, as three of his fellow South Carolinian signers were. But he was on another voyage made perilous by the war. Lynch was one of the youngest signers of the Declaration at 26 years old, and he wasn't supposed to be there. His father, Thomas Lynch Sr., was supposed to be the signer. Lynch's father was ill, and Lynch wanted to see him, but even for this extenuating circumstances he could not get leave from his militia company in South Carolina. Election to Congress was one of the ways his fellow South Carolinian friends could get him to Philadelphia to see his father and still an honorable way. Sadly, despite Lynch's youth, he himself was sickly, as his father was. He would suffer from some kind of fever, perhaps an infection unknown in that day, nausea, hot flashes, sweats. He would often find it difficult to work through the sessions. His absence may have been okay with some of the independence faction, though. Benjamin Rush felt he was a man of modern talents and timid to difficult circumstances of his country. But in his moderation, he was no different than his father's position, who he thought, entering the Congress... To replace his father, he should emulate. Without modern medical knowledge, it was felt that a change of climate might help, in the view of Thomas Lynch Jr.'s physicians and friends. Presented the only hope of his recovery. Maybe the south of France. But a voyage to Europe was at that time hazardous on account of the exposure to capture. There was, however, a boat that was proceeding to a Caribbean island and then with his wife on board, would go to France. It was a circuitous route, through a very different route that the British weren't likely to find. He embarked, as did his wife, and days passed, weeks. No one heard from Lynch, Jr., No one heard from his wife, nor any of the ship's passengers. Months passed, and he was presumed lost at sea. Let me ask you, uh, Jason, uh, do you have a particular favorite signer?
2: I thought that was kind of interesting because when you contacted me by email a while mm-hmm. ago and you suggested that we'd maybe talk about some signers, you listed three of them mm-hmm. that always were probably uh, in my top ten. Oh, there say. you go. Uh, I didn't know how you knew that. that you
0: picked,
2: <laughs> uh, John Hart. And some of these were always my favorites and my brother's favorites just because of uh, what ended up getting on the card and what we always enjoyed about John Hart was that he he spent the war in the countryside living like an animal. and that's uh, I, he's actually the first uh, signer that you talk about in your podcast. They signed It's uh, the man in the cave.
0: He's yeah, I, I talked Hart. about it. I wanted to. It was so important for so many reasons. One, there's a little Jersey patriotism, Bruce Springsteen, apple pie, Taylor Ham, if you will. And John Hart is kind of our uncelebrated signer. In December 1776, an elderly man huddled in a cave. It was not far from his home, but just far enough away from the hostile troopers that were rummaging through the area, who had seized his farm and sacked his millhouse. He cringes with any leaf rustle, stick snap, or hoof in the distance. Is it his patriot friends bringing him food? Is it former neighbors, now loyalists, opposed to independence for the American states, seeking to betray his position? Or is it the sound of the redcoats coming to put him in chains? Anyone who came upon the sight of this man, huddled in blankets freezing cold, might not have realized that he was the founder of a new nation who had, just months before, affixed his name to its founding document, the one we know as the Declaration of Independence. On first glance... I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times.
1: We all know how important it is to keep your eye on the money and not just your own. To follow trends, track financial situations, follow gains and losses, check out the Yahoo Finance podcast. Every day, we'll give you a quick overview of the latest market and financial news that you need to know. You'll be able to hear about the biggest headlines in the business world in three minutes or less, right after markets close. It's perfect to listen to while you make another cup of coffee or work out a new budget. Check it out now. Listen to Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. That's Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts.
0: John Hart may not appear to be one of the great gentry who had committed his property, his honor, and now it seemed clear, his person, to a nation that for the moment existed only on that parchment and not yet in the world of diplomacy. Yet America did exist in the minds of many of his neighbors, the mill workers, militiamen, the farmers, outspoken clergy and everyday mechanics and hands, who all across the English-speaking part of the North American continent were casting away the seal of the king with great enthusiasm. Yet this sudden cave dweller was not just a declaration signer and member of the New Continental Congress. He was the highest officer of the legislative body of his former colony, now a state, the Speaker of the Assembly of New Jersey. That body was still meeting where he could sneak out and muster enough hidden assemblymen for the fledging new state. He still led New Jersey and chaired the Committee of Public Safety for the state's defense. But there were a couple other reasons. One, once again, is a person that I would say middle class, not hurting for money, a miller uh, and a uh, miller at that time, is somebody who would have had connections with people. Anyone who was a miller, like George Washington, for instance, knew the local farmers that would come and bring grain. It was uh, was a kind of social network in addition to being a moneymaker. And um, so I think he just had a reputation, too, for being honest, for treating the Baptist minority in the state of New Jersey well. Uh, and really adhering to that American value of religious freedom. He's somebody who sacrificed, and I talked about that in the beginning, that he was huddled and hiding, but not what this like some of the emails that had gone around had said that he like, you know, they say he's in a dog kennel when actually it was a cave and that cave, this cave still exists. And I mean, maybe a dog lives there. at times, you might put a dog there, but it's certainly not a dog house. It's a cave. And he was hiding from British troops that were looking for him
2: you also had mentioned uh, stephen hopkins which mm. everybody likes him he's always pictured wearing a hat in the <laughs> trumbull painting he's wearing a hat even indoors he wore a hat and he was the signer that had uh, severe palsy so his signature is, is very shaky And there's a quote, and this is one of the problems with researching and getting information about designers, Mm -hmm. is you find these quotes, and there's five different versions of it, and sometimes, obviously, it's cleaned up to be a little more dramatic, but he said something along the lines of, uh, although my hand trembles, my, my heart is firm, and there's questions about whether he steadied his own hand, or whether John Adams helped him, and Uh, I think that's an interesting story about the signers. And it also goes to illustrate the point that a lot of these uh, pieces of information we have about the signing are apocryphal. Mm -hmm. They don't show up for 20 or 30 or 40 years until after the event and and people are are gone and there's no way to verify it. it. And it just ends up being the kind of stuff that gets in an email and sent around. And next thing you know, people know these things, but they aren't necessarily true.
0: It's also pretty clear to me that the significance of the event, especially the real sacredness of it, it was important. Otherwise, it wouldn't have been read by Washington troops. Otherwise, it wouldn't have been something that all of these people decided, whoa, we actually have to all sign this, not just like let the, uh, let the uh, President of Congress sign it and let it be engraved and the like. We have to all sign it. So it was important, and I know, I know it got around and everything, But on the other hand, I also um, think that you see in this, the reason some of these stories are apocryphal and made up is that not everything was recorded. They didn't know the importance. Was it going to work? Was it going to... I mean, as it was, it was a very protracted war for independence. Um, British ships were on their way when this whole thing was happening. And, you know, there was also... um, Probably a lot of different feelings about the men who were sent down there, like a bunch of politicians. You know, it wasn't the universal pride uh, in the colonies for all of the people that were in Philadelphia in that room. And so, I think to some extent, you you later people came and wrote histories and made up stories. But Hopkins, um, I believe, is interesting because all we see the signers. All we see of them is through their signatures. And because his signature has that distinctive particular weakness, it kind of embodies that sacrifice in a way. He did live for a few you know, more years. It wasn't like he just died the next year or something like that. I think what's interesting about... Um, the other thing that's interesting about uh, Hopkins is this rivalry that he has with uh, uh, Samuel Ward... Um, He's Rhode Island. Samuel Ward's Rhode Island. They're both running for governor at different times. And this is all before there's a United States. So we had politics, folks, before there was a United States, and it was intense, and it was a rivalry. And um, Ward represented Newport and maybe the richer elites of Rhode Island, and Stephen Hopkins represented the um providence and the growing kind of middle class working class um that were that were had property and were able to vote at that time and you know it was a, it was a very severe rivalry and you get this sense that through the 1750s they're kind of battling each one thinking they can win and and run state politics in in Rhode Island and be governor and it starts to become clear somewhere around 1760 or so that they both realize they're really at parity and that uh, Hopkins isn't going to win this battle being the leader of Providence and Ward isn't going to win this battle being the political leader of Newport. And they decide to... Uh, There's this exchange of letters where they're not sure who wins the election at the and then... Um, Hopkins says, uh, you know, um, maybe we should just consider another candidate for governor. And then Ward offers him the deputy governor spot. And neither one knew. The other one wrote a letter. That never happens. But a few years later, when Hopkins wins the gubernatorial election, he basically says to Ward, let's just come up with a compromise candidate and have that person be governor. And then they're friends and they're together together in the revolutionary cause. So it's an interesting story of early partisan politics in one of the states and also a coming together um, in, in the fight against the Stamp Act and, and the events leading up to the revolution.
2: I, I agree with that. And I, I think going back to your point about how it was an important event, but it probably wasn't viewed the same way at the time as we tend to view it, is illustrated by the fact that we think of the Declaration of Independence and it's in the, the rotunda of the National Archives in the big elaborate nuclear bomb-proof display case in the, the Charters of Freedoms rotunda. But for years, the Declaration of Independence wasn't revered like that. It hung on the wall, in a, I think, in the patent office for years, and it's mostly the, the damage that was done to it was because it was hanging in direct sunlight. And I think it's interesting there, there is something written on the back of the Declaration of Independence, which is not a secret map or anything. It's just somebody labeled it original Declaration of Independence 1776, as though that might be something that you wouldn't be aware of if you were handling the document. <laughs> and the the 1904 book that we have shows a a picture of the the case where the declaration is kept. So I don't think it was even on public display in the early 1900s. And that's something that's certainly changed since then.
0: And Stephen Hopkins is in your deck of cards, one of the Patriot cards. And there he is with his hat uh, and uh, very much revered in the state of Rhode Island. Uh, Yeah. And the other one that I mentioned was Button Gwinnett when that <laughs> yeah. First thing is, you can be very wealthy if you have that signature.
2: That, that's right. There were only something like uh, 50 known examples of his signature because he wasn't, he was uh, fairly obscure until right at the time of the uh, Revolutionary War, and he didn't live long after. He had another one of those. Rivalries where uh, he was the the governor of Georgia and his arch rival was uh, General MacIntosh and they had kind of an uh, ill conceived adventure invading East Florida which was controlled by the the British at the time it didn't go well and they both blamed each other and then uh, someone ended up challenging the other to a duel and they fought a duel with pistols at at twelve paces and they both got shot uh, MacIntosh recovered and Gwinnett did not. So he died in 1777. So he didn't have a a lot of opportunities to sign things and create a bunch of signatures and write letters and sign documents. So there's um, 40 of those signatures, I think are in public collections in Mm -hmm. museums or, or state capital uh, collections. And so there's only 10 of those signatures that are available to be purchased privately. And uh, I think you have to pay a lot of money to get one
0: it it's notable that um McIntosh also was a continental war officer and um uh after the duel Washington had him sent up <laughs> like please come up to the army again because he was afraid what might happen if he remained in Georgia there he might be a uh, prosecutor tried and that uh, he was uh, in the in in Valley Forge the winter of 77 to 78 um and um it's just a shame, of course, that uh, you know a, a signer of the Declaration gets killed over you know a kind of a trading of insults and some other political issues, and that it couldn't be it couldn't be resolved. You know that we we weren't just fighting Britain at the time, but there was still intra um, state and intra country politics, and uh, even among those in the Revolution that were leading to duels and and. And things like that. Um, a lot of people believe, well, the beginning of American politics was after we formed a country and maybe the first president. <laughs> That's certainly not.
2: People look at what's going on around them today and they see the, the politics and they see the way the media behaves and they see that there's certain outlets that are very right wing and others that are left wing. And we all pull our hair out and think, why isn't everybody neutral like they used to be in the old days? But if you know anything about the old days, it, it never has been in that way. It's always been the same. And it's always fascinating to see you tie those threads together and make sense of everything. And I, I really appreciate what you do.
0: Yeah, we'll keep doing this as long as people keep listening. We've got a lot planned. Um, I have a whole thing that I'm working on in the 1890s. And um, there I've done two scrapbooks for the Patreon and premium podcasts uh, where I've read the scrapbook. Essentially, I'm working on the third. There will be four scrapbooks. And once I have four scrapbooks um, for the lucky premium and Patreon subscribers, I'll uh, I'll get that into about two episodes. If you actually have to do an episode, that's kind of uh, narratived and and then themed um, that'll fit in about two about the 1890s and the um, some of the weird events that happened some of the modernizing of America uh, things that are still issues today really got their start back then um, some hot button issues uh, may have not been resolved by any means in the 1890s but you're starting to see the beginnings of it and it was a huge time of course for politics in that decade, that, um, you know, uh, populism, um, silver and um, gold money, tariffs, and um, big corporations, the progressive, uh, the beginnings of any kind of progressive era, the the regulation of industries, all of that being fought out in the 1890s. And so we're going to have a, a nice time. At some point, I, I you know, I used to say the summer, and now we're in the summer, so I, I have to say the fall now to keep pushing it.
2: Um, I know that we're all looking forward to that, and you've had other listeners on, and I've heard those uh, podcasts, and people have commented on the the Dozen Ronald Reagans and the Arc of Commerce. Those are both just fantastic pieces of work, and uh, I believe you have a full-time job. Yeah. I don't know where you find the time to do the research that's required and and get those things produced and edited and out for all of us to enjoy. But I have a, a full-time job, and I can barely find the time to listen to everything that, that you put out. So I, I really wish somebody would give you a, a MacArthur grant or something so you could just dedicate yourself full-time to making more podcasts.
0: We're, oh, thank you so much, Jason. Much appreciated. Um, and, and your support's appreciated. And everyone who supports, I'm lucky to have about maybe 50 people on Patreon, and maybe about the same amount on this other original channel of the uh, premium. And that helps out so that a minimum, you know, there's no costs uh, that I have to incur for those are taken care of and things like the JSTOR journals, which really help. The fact that JSTOR went to, uh, two things have helped me greatly. Google Books, believe it or not, although they're getting more and more restrictive. I can see enough in a Google Book because if I had to buy every book, I mean, I, for, for all these episodes, you know, I could see enough to get the proof that I need for a statement or to double-check a fact or to, you know, get a second source or things where that's been essential. Public libraries have been essential. My own bookshelves uh, has been essential. The ability of donors so that I can buy books has been essential. And then JSTOR changing to, to not just allowing kind of the elitist thing of, like, you have to be a member of a college or institution to get access to the journals. But about three years ago, um, allowing individuals to pay a fee and just get in. And, and I have that which allows journal articles. And that has been uh, invaluable because, you know, the political science journals and the historical journals just can go deeper and answer questions that people really have. A lot, this is This is a kind of crazy thing. A lot of the questions that are burning that people have. About politics and history are answered in journals. Probably Presidential Studies Quarterly or the Mississippi Valley Historical Association from 1962 or 1946 answered these questions, but we have to dig to find it. And uh, I'm always amazed at what someone has written an article on. Or uh, I like to go diagonal, use a biography. Which isn't intending, if, you, if you're reading a book that's about the question you're trying to answer, you have the possibility of bias because that author has an agenda, even if they're nice about it, even if they're trying not to. But if you're reading something diagonally where it's like, say, a biography and you just happen to read a factoid that is related to your research question, that's very useful. And a lot of those journal articles, there might not be a journal article on the specific thing that I'm looking for. But you may pick up something in the course of, um, uh, you know, in another journal article. Was there one in the latest um, deregulation airline cast? Let me think about that. I think something came up where I tried to find, you know, the usual suspects, tried to find if anybody had any memoirs, but Carter didn't talk about it. So there'll there'll be something like a question that's open. So Senator Kennedy helped out. Uh, this great liberal senator helped out with this great, somewhat you know libertarian or conservative issue of airline uh, deregulation. So the real question that people have is, yeah, but this is kind of some kind of fluke. Did he really care? Did he really want to be in this, or did he just happen upon this issue? There might be a little of that, but the one thing that I found is that when he gives his speech, so then you go to the episode we did in the nineteen eighty. Con- DNC convention podcast and when Kennedy gives his speech the dream will never die i find that um he cites he's proud to cite his deregulation bills as among his accomplishments that's a speech where he's taking a free shot at goal. He's not going to get the nomination. He wants to rally the troops. He could have said anything. So you kind of get the sense that's really what you care about, and he mentions it there. So you find diagonal ways to kind of prove your point or get, get more purchase on what you're looking for. I do have a full-time job. It's not even a small one. Um, it drives me crazy sometimes how I, how I do it. I just try to, you know, I have to limit a lot of my reading to, History, I have to read like a grad student, meaning I have to read indexes and then read the passages. I don't read, I can't always read whole books like sometimes I would like to. Uh, It's a little easier to read whole books when I'm doing one of those things like the Reagan or the Arc of Commerce. And I put it together and I don't come out with episodes every week like a lot of podcasters. And I, you know, I'm not trying to cry, but I paid a little price for that over the years. I do think that the professional podcasting industry that's there now is really bent on... you got to come out with content like every week. Um, But thank you for your comments and all of that. I really appreciate the the patronage of it. The only thing I'll add to that is I really do pine for a point at which I will be able to do this more and offer more content. And, uh, you know, that could be coming. I mean, I do have advertising on the cast. I've recently joined the Airwave Media Network. That is still not... um, you know, a full-time type thing, you know, the audience would have to be, you know, larger for advertising to really work. But there's some, um, you know, there are, you know, if consistent advertising happens, a lot more opens up. So there is the possibility, and I will definitely probably be looking like 2022, 2023 to, to have more of like, Maybe I'll do a telethon or something like Free Bruce, you know, (laughs) Uh, so that I can do more, so I can have more content. Um, Because even if I could only do it for a small period, I want to build the content well so it can be used later. Oh, what the heck? Let's pull out one. Let's pull one more here. So this is the eight of uh, hearts. The eight of hearts is James Smith of Pennsylvania. Yes, we like him. He's the militia man. Irish man who came to America when 10 years old. Lawyer who spent years on the frontier as a change of pace from the law. Colonel in local militia. Much of his life a mystery since fire destroyed his papers. I love that idea of like living in the in the frontier as a change of pace from the law. As a lawyer, <laughs> do you ever feel like running away? <laughs>
2: You know, I do. It's actually been a very strange year. I just went back to court last Monday for the first time since March of 2020. Once the uh, pandemic hit, we started doing everything over Zoom or or something, and it really hasn't been the same. There's a a lack of interaction with people and camaraderie you feel with the other attorneys and meeting people up at the courthouse. All that's been gone, so I'm really hoping to get a little closer back to normal. Sometime soon,
0: yeah. No, and I hope the same. It's it's really. Uh, I've just recently been able to venture out. the The lockdown's been good for, for working on a podcast. It's been it's been slightly bad for podcast audiences. So has the proliferation of um, you know Dolly Parton, uh, Bruce Springsteen, and Obama. Every Soprano cast member um, having their own podcast, um, even though they're immensely good. And I listen to a lot of other podcasts. Um, but it, it, that competition takes a little bite out. And then people not on long commutes anymore. I'm sure there are right. people telling me, Bruce, I'm really looking forward to re- listening to your next eight uh, podcasts uh, when I drive again or go on the road. So uh, all of that. Um, so it's good that hopefully you can have some normalcy um, and you know get back to things. But... Um,
2: I was just going to say, I don't have much of a commute. It's 15 or 20 minutes. I live in a different town than I work. But I, I will let you know that there have been a number of times where uh, NPR has something they call driveway stories, where you get home and you're in the driveway and the story is so good that you finish listening to it. I have a lot of episodes of your podcast that are just parking lot stories. <laughs> I get to the office and I can see that there's there's still 20 minutes left, but I'll I'll just sit in the car and finish it off before I go into the office. So, Well, I mean, that's
0: the way it's got to be told in history stories. And um, I guess there's just, it happens naturally uh, for me. It's, it's not, it is written and there is a script for both episodes. Some, some are um, script mixture. I've gone to a hybrid recently, but um, I don't, I don't just wing it. And I don't do a strict like Mike Duncan type script either. Somewhere in between. Do you pay a low price for that, too? There are some people that like this scripted stuff. so. But I also just find, like, wow, find some great stories. The stories tell. There, there there, really is some some interesting events that have happened. Um, uh, the, the episode that became Don't Run for President just came out of let me find every funny campaign story that I can. And then I realized how often it had to do with people not wanting to run for president, though people were forcing them. Or just running so badly that they really weren't running. Or Stephen Douglas, who basically, you know, um, tried to run, but you weren't supposed to run in 1860. So when he actually campaigned, he got in trouble. So there was all these little, like, you know, uh, stories. So I'm really glad to hear all that. And uh, Jason, thanks so much for coming on.
2: And thank you, Bruce.
0: Heck of a first day for George Taylor, one of the Pennsylvania signers of the Declaration of Independence. He wasn't there on July 2nd, when the resolution for independence was passed, nor was he there on July 4th. He was appointed to Congress July 20th, and so one of his first acts was to sign the Declaration. The opening happened because before the vote for independence, five of Pennsylvania's delegates who were loyalists were forced to resign and replaced by others, including Taylor. Taylor only serves in that Continental Congress that signed the Declaration for one year. And why? Because he's not renominated to Congress in 1707 because he runs the Pennsylvania Executive, which was a plural executive, meaning more like a council. He was running that. And that is a very important duty to be running the states. And so we don't see in the signers a complete document of maybe the best people in the colonies at the time because some of them were running their states taylor plays a very important role as the owner of a foundry and one of the important limitations that caused the revolution among them, a lot of other things was the iron act which limited the amount of iron that could be produced in the united states and the opening of new foundries taylor had one of them and of course produced cannon shot for the Continental Army, a very important purpose. He dies before the Battle of Yorktown, February 23rd, 1781. One of several signers to not make it through the Revolutionary War, to not know what the document they signed led to.